0: Okay. Good morning, everyone. Late service, people. Thank you for waiting on us. This has been kind of a festival time of the church year. So we obviously we rolled through Christmas, uh, baptism of our Lord today. Uh, historically, really, really big day in the church year. Okay. Um, And so I always tend to get a little excited. I tend to pick a little longer hymns which tell more of the story and I tend to preach just a little longer. It wasn't that bad. It's just all the wonderful stuff coming up. So if you're one of those clock watchers, don't worry, we're coming up on pre-Lent really quick. So once we get through Transfiguration, the services will not have quite as much pomp and circumstance. Um, uh, We won't do as much uh, chanting and singing and when you speak things, they go quicker anyway. Um, so uh, I just tell people, uh, you know, if, if there's something that, that not floating in your boat, just wait. It'll change in a few months. So I like to kind of cycle things throughout the year. Uh, same thing with the church services. Uh, we talked a little bit about this before, but, you know, we're using Divine Service 3 now. Once we get into pre-Lent, or actually once we get into Lent, we'll switch over to Divine Service 1. And there'll be some parts of that that'll be um, omitted uh, because of the somber, meditative nature of Lent. And then once we hit Easter, all the bells and whistles and lilies come out. Um, As I was talking with Pastor Grady, one of the things you'll notice during Lent, um, I don't chant uh, or sing the liturgy, per se, during Lent. Um, I just speak everything so like the intro it will do that uh, and that creates a very visible and auditory difference of what we're doing and then once Easter Sunday comes then we bring the Alleluia's out uh, then we sing and make merry and give thanks for the resurrection so just a few little things you'll catch with that Um, so I know everybody has their favorite services and their favorite uh, parts of the service and you know I wish pastor would speak that or I wish he'd chant that don't worry Um, I'll mix it up throughout the year, okay? a Couple things real quick. The March for Life is coming up Tuesday, January 22nd. Uh, You should have seen this flyer. Um, It is during the day, so I know that may not work with all your work schedule. Uh, Come for as much as you're able. Um, I would say the main thing is really just the march. Uh, We're obviously not gonna go down and partake of the mass at noon. Um, We'll do that here on Sunday as we do every Sunday. Uh, But the march is at 1.30 and the rally then steps to the courthouse then at 2 o'clock. Okay, so I will plan on being there. If there's anybody that would like a ride, uh, let me know. I will gladly uh, pick you up uh, and throw extras in the bed of my pickup or something. We'll figure it out. So we'll get you down there if you want to go. Okay, Uh, let's see. I think that's enough for just kind of brief introductory remarks. Let's go ahead and pray. The Lord be with you. Father in heaven, at the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River, you proclaimed him your beloved son and anointed him the Holy Spirit. with the Holy Spirit. Make all who are baptized in his name faithful in their calling as your children and inheritors with him of everlasting life. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, we had one question last week that as I, as I left church, Uh, Well, as I headed out to the airport to catch my flight, which I did, uh, man, we've got a really nice airport to get in and out of. It is really, you know, I was kind of spoiled in Omaha because it wasn't a very big airport either, but it was like two, two and a half hours away. So we are very blessed here, really easy to get through security and all that stuff. So um, yeah, so made it to Minnesota just fine. Uh, Funeral service was, well, let's not talk about the funeral service, shall we? Uh, you know, let me just say this real quick. So, so my, my grandma was basically baptized in this church and raised, so 100 years. It was an old ALC, uh, and uh, uh, mainly uh, Swedish and, and Norwegians uh, in that area. It's called East Svedal Lutheran Church. Beautiful, beautiful sanctuary. The way they just constructed and built it, it's, it's hard to build churches. too costly to build churches like that nowadays. And, um, and used to be extremely conservative, have some of the most beautiful stained glass I've ever seen. Um, and, and long story short, back in the, well, it was right after the merger, uh, the ELCA you know, was formed in 1988, then they got their first uh, uh, female pastor, um, and, and all the female pastors have been the nicest ladies. I mean, it's not, you know, we don't have issues theologically with female pastors because, of ability or intellect or anything like that it has nothing to do with that. Uh, it has to do with, with God's uh, clear word, which, which really is about spiritual headship in some ways, too. Um, and so, uh, anyway, long story short, uh, still have a female pastor there, a real nice lady. She never got Jesus on the cross in the funeral sermon. You know, basically what we heard from the sermon was my grandma was saved and went to heaven because she had a deep and abiding faith, Okay. But see, faith in faith is not faith. Faith in Jesus is faith, right? So you have to make sure you make that distinction. A lot of people miss out on that, even, even amongst our Lutheran circles. Um, so, otherwise, all the basic stuff was there. It was really good to see all the cousins. I have, um, my mom had an older sister that died at 22 of leukemia, and, sh- and her and her husband had three kids before she died. He remarried a wonderful woman, Aunt Helen, they had two more. And one of the sons from the blood relation to me um, uh, became an ELCA pastor, a Lutheran pastor. And he left ELCA about, oh, eight or nine years ago because he just got fed up with the theology. Um, But he didn't quite go very far. (laughs) He's LCMC, uh, which also is NALC. And that probably means absolutely nothing to most of you. Uh, but, but still allow for ordination of women, but make a stance in terms of issues of sexuality. So still maintain that homosexuality is, is a sin, um, but they don't go so far on other things. So. Now, the funny thing is that his younger brother, who is from um, you know, his, his stepmom, um, he met a Wisconsin Lutheran girl in college, and her dad was a Wisconsin Lutheran pastor. So he became a Wisconsin Lutheran pastor. And so, so here, here, here am I, <laughs> Missouri Synod, and then I've got ELCA, you know, kind of LCMC, at least tried to be a little more conservative, and Wisconsin Synod on the other hand, right? And of course, you know, Wisconsin Synod is not gonna pray with us, you know, and, and I'm Missouri Synod, I'm not gonna commune with either of them, um, you know, but <laughs> we get along famously, it's, it's really, uh, really good. I had this good theological talk with Bud, and, and all of us after the funeral, it was funny, We all poked our heads together, and we were kind of lamenting what we didn't hear in the funeral service and that sort of thing. So uh, anyway, so that's a little bit more about my family that you may not have known. Okay, Um, but there was a question last week I want to cover before we get into the topic that I'd chosen for today, and that was on the Nicene Creed. Somebody over this direction asked me about why we use the Nicene Creed uh, every Sunday for the divine service. Um, And... Uh, my first response is still probably the best one—that it has to do with Jesus being both, uh, you know, God and man; that He's human and divine at the same time. But there's one other thing I forgot to, uh, to forgot to mention. And I, as I on the plane, I was like, "Oh, I should have talked a little bit about that." There's something that's known as the Filioque clause, okay? And and that clause in the Nicene Creed, uh, it goes. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, goes a little bit like this. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. So one of the issues in the early church that happened back in, the, well, it probably started in the, the early 3rd century and then ran into the 4th until they dealt with it, uh, was, you know, does the Holy Spirit only come from the Father? Or does the Holy Spirit come from both the Father and the Son? And what this really has to do is with what I mentioned earlier about Jesus being both God and man. If God is truly God and truly man, then the Holy Spirit proceeds from where? The Father and the Son. And that's why that's added in there. Okay, And so now not only is the Father sending the Holy Spirit, who also, in his words of consecration, is sending the Holy Spirit to you? Jesus right? So there's a little more detail in the Nicene Creed, and and those are probably the two main reasons why uh, it was used mainly at the Lord's Supper and still remains the main creed we use at the supper. The Athanasian Creed, obviously longer, more Trinitarian. And the other thing is the Apostles' Creed um, is obviously the shortest and simplest, uh, designed really for daily use. So if you go through your catechism, how many times, here's a trivia question, does Luther encourage you to pray the Apostles' Creed throughout the day? I'll give a Snickers bar to whoever gets the right answer. Are you guessing? Yes. Oh? I don't accept guesses. Email me this week. Email. I'll let you know next Sunday. I know. We'll see how many people... I might have to bring a lot of Snickers bars. But that'll make you open your catechism to look at it. Okay. So, uh, the main thing is that the creed is, and I'm going to probably have to get the small Snickers bars, I can't afford the big ones for all of you guys, um, that you know, the, the Apostles' Creed is, is meant really for daily use, also baptisms, uh, and, and, and other non-communion kind settings, if you will. Okay? okay, enough about that. What I wanted to cover today, are there any other questions about anything we talked about last week? This has been kind of awkward these first few Sundays. What I would like to do is we decide what we're going to do here for a Bible study, and we get some sort of format going forward. Uh, that way, Pastor Grady and I can take turns teaching. Um, so before I introduce what I want to talk about today, any suggestions of a topic you really want to cover or a book of the Bible? Usually there's somebody that's got a, a, a burning desire to study some topic or something, I'm going to kind of propose one now, but before I do that, I want to open the floor to that. Yes, ma'am. Ooh, baptism of babies. Okay, so we're talking about paedo-baptism, infant baptism, baptizing, you know, why do we baptize babies is the main question. Okay, that's good. Anything else? Good catechetical stuff. That's a good foundation. There's a really good book, by the way. I'm just off the top of my head. Uh, uh, he's a, a pastor now. Andrew Das. I think it's D-A-S is the last name. You can look it up on Amazon or whatever library thing. Or um, And what is the title of it? I think it's really simple. Why do we baptize babies or something like that? He was at seminary, and he was dating a gal who was Baptist, Armenian theologically, and that was her big issue. That separated the two of them. Um, you know, and they loved each other, and they were talking about getting married, but the one hump they couldn't get over was, if we have kids, do we baptize them or not? He said no, or she said no, because she was all about, you know, it's, it's, it should be your decision, your choice. And he's always like, uh, you know, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you, that sort of thing. It's all about, you know, God doing the work, not us. Um, and so he laid it out. It's probably the best laid out book that I've used before. I've got it on my shelf too, so I'll try and and make it. Shoot me an email if you would about that. Could you do that? mmckay at adventlutheran.org, so otherwise I'll forget. Okay, any other? That's a good one. Any other suggestions? Yeah, Mary. Okay. So both of you are kind of talking about apologetics, which is making a defense for our faith and and why we believe what we do. Um, There's actually a really good book that CPH came out with that, that that goes through a lot of these things. So um, I'll talk to Pastor Grady. Maybe, I don't know if you've had that. I can't remember the name of that book. Uh, Corey Moss. I don't know if you know some of these names. There's some um, Christian apologetics. Chris Roseborough, Uh, pirate Christian radio um, Jonathan Fisk you've read some of his stuff Um, well I could go on and on it's not important to name drop but there's a lot of resources out there for that so maybe we can tie in with a current book and maybe study that you know Sunday morning I can throw it up on the Kindle we can put a screen up here that way if you don't want to buy the book you can follow along Does that sound good okay all right anything else before we get into the last 26 minutes of class Okay, I need two volunteers to help hand out a couple of things. Okay. This was a topic that uh, the elders um, had actually asked me about back through the call process. And there have been um, many of you that have youth and children that also have, have just had some some general questions and, and 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 the topic for today that i just want to at least kind of introduce is this concept of, uh, of 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 catechesis in terms of what are we preparing our children and youth for um and then on to the next step when should they receive the lord's supper okay um so there's that term first communion which for those of you that are, are recovering roman catholics you know it well Um, Of course, in the Roman Catholic faith, it's not so much, you you do go to confession for the first time, um, but it's kind of, it's almost kind of mandated at like the the first grade level, okay? It's not so much an emphasis on what you believe or have you covered the basics of the faith yet, Um, you know, it's become, it's just become very standardized in that regards. And what I would submit to you is when we start talking about confirmation or First Communion, um, at the heart of all of it is, 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 is faith, as it is with everything, right? It's faith. And so what I've grown up with in the Missouri Senate, which is the same as you've grown up with, is when do you get the Lord's body and blood? When do you get confirmed? When do you do it? Eighth grade, right? Is that, is that fair? Anybody disagree with that? Take Lord's body and blood, and you get confirmed at eighth grade, correct? So it's standardized, so what we have done is we've made it standard. Well, one of the things that I've experienced as a pastor, and I think any pastor in the room hopefully will nod their head along with this, um, is throughout that process, I've had a lot of confirmation students that I'm not sure they were ready to take the Lord's body and blood, nor do I think they were ready to make a lifelong vow of, a vow of fidelity. Okay, Because part of your pledge and your confirmation vow is, is I'm going to believe this for the rest of my life, and I'm even going to suffer death rather than fall away from it. I mean, that's a big deal. So, so vows, you know, uh, are okay. God allows for that for very important things. So think of other things that are sacred vows. Give me some other examples that's a sacred and holy vow. Marriage. Marriage. Is eighth grader ready to do that? All right, what else? Ordination. Ordination. Okay, that's very good. Thank you, pastor's wife. Uh, so, uh, Okay. Anything else? Sacred vows. Anybody served in the military? What do you swear? Do you remember your vows? Do you remember it? Could you speak it? Could you tell us what it is again? Put you on the spot. That's okay. The Constitution of the United States and defend... Foreign and domestic, M&E. okay. I mean that—that's a big deal, and that's that's. And God says yes, that's good to make vows like that. You know, is an eighth grader ready to do that? We say eighteen, right? By constitution or by, by law of the land, right? That that you can do that, okay. Um, my wife has a uh, a student in where she's teaching now that is senior in high school, yeah. junior, twenty years old, um, right? Something like that. And I don't share his name or any information, but uh, one of the questions I had for her is, is, could he be drafted? Then if still he's still in high school? and I, I guess technically, yes. I mean, I don't know if they would. So if you were held back a little bit, you know, through school. But, but the point is this, that, you know, there, there's an age where we recognize that you're mature enough to deal with long-term serious things. And so now my question is, and I've got, I got children too, <laughs> You know, I'm not sure that, you know, and we've got two of them that have made confirmation vows. I'm not sure that they were really ready to make lifelong vows like that at 13 years of age. And that's something you as parents, I want you to kind of think about that. Okay. Now, there's an interesting history about confirmation. Let's let's read through this. This is something that I put together along with our associate pastor back in, 2014 and then we we adopted this as our policy at the last parish I was at okay now this doesn't mean that's what we're going to do here um, this topic of first communion and confirmation has has really what's how do we explain it Pastor Grady it's it's a really big topic right now in the Missouri Synod Okay? And so all of us here know of other congregations that are either doing some sort of First Communion practice, um, which is actually in our agenda and in our hymnal, um, or have moved confirmation age okay? earlier or even later. Okay? So it's, it's a very interesting topic. Write down this name real quick. If you've got a pen or pencil or put it in your smartphone. Reverend Mark Serberg, S U R. B-U-R-G. He was a graduate student when I was at seminary. He actually taught uh, uh, Greek uh, on the weekend, and uh, he's become a, a very dear friend. He's, I think he's in, I want to say, Marion, Illinois, um, not a long ways away from us. But he has done, he's got an STM. He never finished his PhD. I wish he would have, but he just got fed up with some of the politics in the church, and he just wanted to be a parish pastor, and I love him for that. But if you if you Google Mark Serberg with the, the word confirmation, you'll come up with his whole blog. And I could have printed it off for you, but it was like 95 pages. And so I thought, no, I'm just going to give him one sheet for today. Um, he goes through the, it's called the Weird and Wacky History of Confirmation. And it's one of the best, most in-depth studies that I've seen of confirmation. And he goes all the way back into the early church he takes it basically through the last 2,000 years of Christianity. At some point, you'll probably fall asleep when you're reading it. Um, but if you, if you take the time to go through it, you will be really blessed by that. And, he, and, and, and his only goal, and he's not advancing any sort of an agenda, nor is he answering the question we're struggling with. He's just saying, here's the history of what confirmation is, Okay, of what it was and kind of what it's become. Okay? All right. Any questions on that before we get into the sheet? Okay, nobody's throwing rotten fruit at me, so I will go on. On the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Holy Supper of his body and blood for his church to eat and drink. In the Lord's Supper, Christ promises the forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. Holy Communion is purest gospel. There is nothing we can do to earn or merit this great and precious gift. However, St. Paul warns that the supper can be taken to one's harm, 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Therefore, no one should be admitted to the Lord's table who is without faith, who has a wrong understanding of the supper. And that's why, historically, the church has always practiced something known as closed communion. Okay? We still practice that here. To my knowledge, we've always practiced that here. For some of you, that was probably a brand new thing. Perhaps when you first became members or joined, and like some people, you might have thought, oh, they think they're so high and mighty over there at, at that Lutheran church, and da 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 you know. And, the, and then as you studied scripture, you come to understand that, that communion is not just about me and God. It's also about me and who else other people, right? So it's the vertical and the horizontal relationship at the same time. And it's also about the fact that objectively, and this flies in the face of postmodern philosophy, you know, there is something known as truth. <laughs> there is black and white, okay? And, and that's, that's really hard, you know, to teach, uh, you know, and that's why apologetics, like we talked about, is very important. So helping to equip you with God's word One of the challenges that you'll have in talking with other people is when you say, "Thus saith the Lord," they'll say, "So what?" (laughs) I mean, that's that's just sinful nature's reaction. So God says that, "Okay, I see. I see what you're saying. I see. Thanks for pointing me out to the Bible, but so what?" And then it becomes, you know, the question that the devil asked or tempted Adam and Eve: "What did God really say? Or is that really God that's saying that?" Right. So, you know, uh, you know, Paul, well, you talk about, you know, women as pastors, or you talk about homosexuality, that was, that was just Paul's opinion, or Moses' opinion, that wasn't really what God meant, right? See, now you start going down this other, <laughs> this other path, and that's a very dangerous path, because then what is truth and what is not? But that, that's the whole, I just simply call it the, the, the postmodern cycle. Okay, but remembering that the supper is Christ's gift, we do not desire to withhold from those who are repentant, and repentant means able to know and be sorry for their sins, and let's do repentance again from the catechism. Repentance has two parts. First, that you confess your sins. Second, that you receive absolution, okay, Uh, from who? From the pastor as from Christ himself, right? Okay, so confess your sins and receive absolution. Okay, so repentance, able to know, so know what sins are, also be sorry for them, and know the basics of the Christian faith. When Luther talks about the basis of the Christian faith, he talks about the Ten Commandments, the law, the Apostles' Creed, which is gospel, and the Lord's Prayer, which really is divine service, or God inviting you into his presence and communication with him, telling you his name. Okay? Just like I'm still learning some of your names. <laughs> you all know mine. <laughs> right? So, so you know, th- those are the, the three main things. Rather, we should desire that all would be taught and encouraged toward receiving the Lord's Supper. So one of the goals when there's a kid that's, that's born in the congregation, what's one of the main goals? What should be one of the main goals? B- baptism and Lord's Supper. Oh, some of you said confirmation. We're going to talk about that. I would say it's not confirmation. I would say it's simply taking the Lord's Supper. Now, we'll, we'll get into that. That's, that's, I'm, I'm jumping a little too far ahead. Because that's how we've been trained. It's kind of like, you know, what do you do after you're a senior in high school? You do what? You graduate, right? So you've got all these kind of standardized things that are now part of the life of the church, but what do they really mean? And so the question is, does confirmation still mean what it was originally intended to mean, um, or are we maybe putting our eggs in a basket that's really not a very good basket to put eggs in? (laughs) It's got a hole in the bottom, which is part of the question we have. What happens to all of our youth? You know, you go through and you look at all the confirmation pictures, and then you go through as pastors or as church members, and you're like, man, I haven't seen them for ever. (laughs) Ever. Okay, as I always, you know, jokingly said, they fall into a deep, dark hole, never to be heard from again. Um, and so, you know, and then that's 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 been a challenge, you know. And then we've created other things to try and retain the youth, you know. We've 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 made them do all sorts of other duties to try and make the parents bring them, you know, to church, um, you know, whether it's you know acolyte or crucifer or just other types of things. We've tried to create things which is really kind of using the law to get parents to bring their kids to church, right? Which really, it should be done willingly and gladly, okay? Uh, So, anyway, more on that later. And all that stuff is good. I'm not not bashing any of that. I'm just asking, what are the reasons behind kind of what we do? All right, where am I at now? Because you know me, I get off topic really easy. Uh, Rather, we should desire that all would be taught and encouraged toward receiving the Lord's Supper. So that's the goal, okay? It is with this scriptural basis that the earliest Lutherans did not assign a specific age to reception of the body and blood of Christ, but rather left it to the parents, those responsible for for teaching the child the faith, and the pastors, those charged by Christ as stewards of the mysteries of God called to teach the flock. So the pastors and the parents then would decide when a child had a right understanding of the faith and a desire for the forgiveness of sins found in the supper. Now, if you study the history of confirmation, you'll also learn that you know, schooling or education wasn't standardized so much as we have it now. Uh, and for a lot of people, education uh, was, was only afforded to those of the higher classes, those that could afford either a tutor or even some private schools. Okay, So because of that, the bulk of people that might come in and out of the doors of a church, um, they were demographically really quite different from what we're used to. Um, and so there's something to be said for that as well uh, you know. In, in terms of if a student really hasn't learned to read or write or memorize or ever been taught, you know, they might get confirmed later. Those that had access to teachers or, or, or their parents gave a lot of money to the church and the priest came to visit them more often, uh, then maybe they would have a little more access that way. So there's some interesting nuances throughout uh, the, the history of the church that way. But really what it comes down to is, is what is the faith? Of, of this person. What is the faith and what does their faith grab hold of? Okay. Uh, what, what, what is the object? What are the objects? Okay. So because of that, we don't have really, you know, when you talk about uh, hi- history of Lutheranism, for most of us, we we'll, would we'll just go back to our grandpa- grandma or our great grandparents and, and in American Lutheranism. You know, part of the reason it was set up at eighth grade was because for most rural places, that was as much education as you got. And so once you go through eighth grade, you were lucky to have a high school in some parts of the country, most parts of the country at that time. Eighth grade was it. Uh, My other grandma who passed away a couple years ago, that's all she ever received, eighth grade, little town of Lockwood, Missouri, farming community, about an hour from Springfield, Missouri, southeast corner, uh, north of Oliver. And um, that was it, eighth grade, that was it. A smart woman, one of the most well-read, she educated herself. Oh my goodness, she was, was, I look forward to arguing with her in heaven. We won't argue, though, in heaven, will we? Oh, we talk theology and all sorts of stuff. It was good. Debating, yeah, (laughs) I know. Okay, so earliest Lutherans did not assign a specific age like we do now, but rather left it to the parents and the pastors to decide when they were ready. Uh, and so th- this again, this is what we went through this whole stay with the congregation, our elders, our practice there at Peace Lutheran was that no member can receive the Lord's Supper until they are confirmed, which sets an age limit of eighth grade, right? So we've said in in essence, thus saith the Lord, or maybe not that far, but that's kind of what we what we have done is this is it. You can't you can't have it before. Now, this is a man-made ordinance. You won't find this anywhere in from from Scripture. So this process of confirmation is not from the Bible. You need to understand that. Um, confirmation is a man-made rite. It actually originated with the Roman Catholic Church, which made confirmation, and it's still today, is an additional sacrament. Okay? In recent times, it's become a rite of passage. And then we've also said, and I'd have to go back and look at our Constitution of Bylaws here at Advent. I haven't done that in this regards, that you know, once you're confirmed, then you can do certain things. You can usher you can volunteer you can support it's customary when you know uh, you know they're they're 13 they're 8th grade they get confirmed one of the first things that is given to them by the board of stewardship is a box of envelopes right uh, so now we got to we're we're going we're going to train you into how we do things right and, and 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 that's maybe not bad training in some respects but You know, are these things you want to emphasize to a 13-year-old who's just dealing with, when am I going to get hair under my arms? You know, does he like me? Does she not like me? You know, I got a bad grade in chemistry or biology and my mom and dad are going to freak out uh, or or whatever. Or I put a dent in the car. (laughs) When you think about things that are important for a 13-year-old, I mean, is it fair to say that, that organizing their finances are pretty high on their list at that point? Or that they're even bringing money in to do that. I mean, you should teach your kids to set aside money, and we have done that with our boys. You know, 10% of everything that comes in, regardless of what it is, set it aside. Take, give it to church, okay? And then savings, so here's your, here's your fun money, you know, here's your, your church money, da-da-da, long-term savings, all right, you know what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, in light of the Word of God, and with more LCMS congregations moving toward an earlier age for First Communion, the elders and pastors studied, research, and discussed the history and practice of First Communion Confirmation, and, and this is the conclusion we reached. I'm not saying that we're going to reach the same conclusions here. We might reach different conclusions. As, as you've heard me say before, this is not about either you know uh, a new pastor coming in or anything. This is about us studying God's Word together and deciding what's best uh, for the people of God in this place, okay? Um, So we studied the history and practice of First Communion Confirmation. We reached the conclusion that children who are ready should be admitted to the Lord's table to receive the forgiveness of their sins and strengthen of their faith um, as they enter the increasingly complex world of junior high, etc. And so our new practice that, that started a few years ago was this. First communion, a public rite of the church that follows scriptural requirements for the public reception of the Lord's Supper will be given to members regardless of age who meet the following requirements. Number one, they request it and desire it. Okay? So their parents now, uh, if they're under 18 years of age, said, hey, are my kids interested in taking the Lord's Supper? I said, thanks be to God. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm so much more happy about them doing that than using an offering envelope every week. I mean, think about it right? I mean, spiritually, I want them to want that. I want, I want you to want these gifts. Desire the, the you know, think of uh, Mary and Martha, right? She desires the, the better thing, right? So, so what is it? Uh, two, able to examine themselves. So there needs to be contrition. So you need to, I'm going to say it right now. I am, I am not a fan or proponent of paedo communion, which is infant communion. And we have some of that going around our Missouri Synod circles, uh, that uh, you know, little babies should be communed, you know, right away, um, and 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 here's why: because Scripture says you need to be contrite, <laughs> okay. Um, and a kid that can't talk yet, <laughs> um, you know, and able to express that, I'm. I mean, they have faith, okay. Uh, I'm not. I'm not doubting that. Uh, but turn from their sins, repentance. That's a turning away. The Hebrew word for repentance is sewer. The way I always remembered it when Dr. Bartelt taught us, What does a sewer smell like? You ever had a sewer back up in your house or crack it open? Woo, yeah. So repentance means you know what the bad smelly stuff is and you're going to turn away from it. You're not going to do that sin anymore. So that's all part of repentance as well. And a desire to receive the sacraments for forgiveness of sins. Simple faith. I believe the body and blood of Jesus are really there. I want forgiveness of sins. I need it because I'm a dirty, stinky, sewer-smelling person. Okay? They should also have a basic knowledge and understanding of the Lord's Supper. They should know the Ten Commandments. They should know the Apostles' Creed. They should know the Lord's Prayer. So, even with, with, with all the confirmands I have, whether we do it formally in class in terms of a test, I always try, I have always tried to sit down with each of the confirma- confirmands outside of class with all the other kids and look them in the eye and say, Now tell me what you believe. You know the Ten Commandments? Tell them to me. You know the Apostles' Creed? Pray it with me lord's prayer and then we might sit and talk as well okay things that are going on in their life and they may or may not open up and if they don't that's okay we're not going to force it but to also teach them that there's a connection with the pastors there in the church for them and this is all part of being a christian okay uh, the third thing there is that these youth that are ready for the lord's supper have been examined by the pastor in such a way um, with the support of the elders so one of the things that we did is I would never, um, you know, uh, do first communion for someone uh, for a youth without the knowledge of the elders as well. So there's other spiritual, you know, support that's going on, right? The whole, the whole, the whole it takes a village to raise a child type of thing. Uh, the children thus admitted shall be encouraged with the rest of the body of Christ to continue in the instruction in the faith. As all members should be encouraged to do, those communing before the eighth grade should seek to speak with the pastor when visiting another congregation, sharing our confession prior to assuming the privilege of approaching the altar. Now, you should do that anyway. If you go visit another church, you're not a member there. We've got to get past this whole Missouri Synod card-carrying thing, okay? You also need to ask yourself, is that a church that I want to commune at? They might be Missouri Synod, but they believe some really wacky stuff because when you commune with others you're now saying you're giving your yes to everything that's going on. That was the hardest thing for my 100-year-old grandma. I'm, I'm really kind of dead that she's, I'm glad that she's dead and in heaven because the question she'd always ask me is, why won't you commune with me? I said, Grandma, you know, you believe that homosexuality is not a sin. You believe that, that women should be pastors and that that's okay. I, You know, we both believe that Jesus is our Savior, you know, but I, I can't give my yes to that, you know. Um, you know, your church and and your faith has changed over the years. Well, then she'd just want to change the topic. She always told me she loved me, but, you know, she always wanted to see her grandsons take communion together. Well, that wasn't going to happen, Wisconsin Synod, Missouri. We're all Christians, though, right? They will all be be gathered before the throne, but, but the Lord put some things in place for the sake of making sure that His Word was purely taught so that no souls would be lost. Because when you start introducing error, now you're going down a slippery slope. okay? And we're called not to do that. So we can talk more about the closed communities, but I think you guys have wrestled with that in the past a little bit. Confirmation, then, um, a public right of the church that is man-made and designed to recognize a coming of age and status as an adult member in the church will still take place at eighth grade. So what we did is we left confirmation where it was at. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't change it. And one of the reasons we didn't, we talked about it, it was such a sacred cow. <laughs> I mean, you know, when you start changing confirmation, I mean, that changes all the, you know, oh, we've got family coming from Oregon for the confirmation, and the Godmother and Godfather are going to be here, and we got gifts lined up. It's just a lot of, it, it's, we're, just, we're just so immersed in it. And so the elders and I decided, and our associate pastor at the time, we're not going to touch that one. <laughs> if you take that away... <laughs> You know, you're going to have a revolt on your hands. You know, I mean, some people might kind of grasp it and go with it, but other people are going to be like, I got to find another church that does confirmation at eighth grade, because that's the way it is, right? Uh, without really kind of diving into it. So, um, now again, what some churches have done is move confirmation earlier. And I've got some good pastor friends. They just, instead of doing First Communion confirmation, two different things or combining them, they just moved it younger, where it's like sixth grade. Um, I know some that just, you know, Confirmation has, they've tried to push it back into the high school years. And that was the attempt of the Roman Catholics to push Confirmation actually to 17 or 18 years of age um, or make it an adult thing. But that's a big change of culture. That's a big change of culture. So for some youth, just at the bottom, this means that First Communion Confirmation will be at the same time. And, you know, for the last three, four years, that's what the majority of parents still did. It really wasn't any change. Um, they still there when they took communion for the first time. It was when they were confirmed at eighth grade. Um, but for others, first communion may happen at an earlier age. So um, two of our sons uh, uh, were basically examined um, and you know communed before they got confirmed. And so our son's in eighth grade now. You notice he's been taking communion, and that was one of the questions that I talked to Pastor Grady about and the elders as well. Um, you know, and I know he's four months away from confirmation age, but. He's been examined and been receiving the Lord's Supper for two, three years now. And I think that's been a real blessing for him. It hasn't been confirmed yet. okay? Um, and he will be, uh, hopefully. Uh, uh, I'll leave Pastor Grady to make the decision on that one uh, this spring. Um, and so, you know, we'll go through and do that. Okay. All right. Now we're, we're, i got about a minute or two minutes left. Quick comments or questions, and then we'll try and get to these next week on this topic. Yes, Phil? Oh, good question. Uh, it's a pa- pastoral, uh, pastoral decision, so to speak. Yeah, it's, it's. It, I mean, everything in the Senate, it's it's a lot like the way our United States government is laid out. So it's whatever the individual state decides, which in our case is what the individual congregation decides. What parents told me what parents told me that the one thing that they can do, last thing that they do is they can love something. Yeah. I've had several, um, boy, a guy by the name of Alan. He's 68 years old now. Alan's a sweetheart. Down syndrome, probably about a second grade level. Um, and he had kind of been communing already when I got there but 11 years ago. But I just sat down with him with a picture book. And I just kind of went through, and he, he get, kind of gave all the right answers. He wanted the Lord's body and blood, very respectful. He understood the basics, you know. Could he say everything word for word is he going to memorize the catechism exactly of course not but was there faith there was i able to discern that yes able to discern that he was sorry for sin absolutely absolutely okay let me test for that i've had a few others severely mentally challenged where after kind of talking with the parents it was decided uh let's just let's just give a blessing okay uh because not sure that 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 was would always be there and that I don't know. I haven't had many of those, but I mean, it's something, again, you work together as the body of Christ. What, What's, what's best for this person? Are, are there concerns there? Um, it's really handled on an individual basis. Thank you for the question. Anything else? You're all like, I can't believe he brought that up today. No, you're all good, right? Okay. So do you want to talk more about that next week a little bit or not? OK, and I don't know. I mean, some of the, the parents here have just kind of asked me, you know, hey, you know, I, we, we, we know either you've done this or other churches are doing this. Do so we need to talk about it? And, and I'm certainly willing to do that. Um, I'm also not pushing for change either, if that makes sense. OK, you know, pushing to, you, you should never make change for the sake of change. If you're going to do it, do it because, you know, we feel it's going to be better for our kids or our youth one way or the other. OK, but let's study it first to make sure we got all our facts in a row. Um, and do some of that. So if you want to do that in the next couple of weeks, then we'll do that. And then from there, unless there's any other suggestions, we can move. And this would, is kind of apologetic as well because when you talk about explaining why we baptize infants and babies and be able to give a defense for that. You know, why do we practice closed communion? Or, or, or why is my kid at sixth grade taking communion, you know, and, and my friends over here, they don't do it till eighth grade. I mean, why is that? So that, that's good to kind of explain that. All right, anything else? Nothing? Okay. All right. You notice I didn't mention anything about the game? (laughs) About the Jayhawks beating Baylor? Because they almost gave that game up at the end. Okay, let's stand and close with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.